Well, this morning as we looked at uh, Matthew 16, uh, when Jesus sought to remind his disciples that he was the Messiah, I emphasize the fact that we can only know who Jesus is when God shows us. But also that um, as we present Jesus to other people, we need to make sure that as we present him as savior, we don't give him false hope. We need to ensure that we don't suggest that by putting faith and trust in him, all the problems will disappear. For that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? What the Bible does teach, though, is that by having our faith and trust in Jesus, we can know true peace. The Bible teaches us no matter what trials or sufferings come before us, because in Jesus we have a sure and certain hope, we can know great peace. And with the Holy Spirit's help, we can say, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so tonight, as we look at this passage in John chapter 20, I want to emphasize what is true peace. Prior to his crucifixion, Jesus sought to provide his disciples with comfort and reassurance. Knowing what they would have to face, he ensures he provides them with everything they need to help them. Whilst they may not understand or get it in that moment, Jesus knows that the Holy Spirit will bring to their remembrance his words. At the right time, it will give them strength. It will give them comfort and hope and peace. And as I was preparing this message, I was struck just by how caring and loving this shows Jesus to be. Think of what Jesus was going to face in the coming days. He knew he'd be beaten and flogged. He'd be tortured and crucified. He'd be abandoned by his father when he was on the cross. He knew there'd be immense anguish, torment and suffering. But yet, his concern, his primary focus is on his disciples and what they would have to face. He wanted to provide them with comfort. How great is our good shepherd who cares for us his flock. John records for us in chapters 14 to 17 this conversation that I've referred to that Jesus had with his disciples after the Last Supper. It's often referred to as Jesus's farewell discourse. And in this conversation, one of the things that Jesus focuses on is the promise that he will bring and give the disciples peace. John 14, 27 says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And Jesus gives us that same peace. And God willing tonight, as we consider what is probably a very well-known passage, we will see something to a greater degree about what this peace means. So the title for today's message, if you'd like to have titles, is Peace Promised, Peace Provided. And I don't know why I've done a bit of a tongue twister, but hopefully it will stick in your minds. Peace Promised, Peace Provided. And so if you have your Bibles, please have them open on John 20, where we have this account of Jesus appearing to his disciples in that locked room. I'd imagine you may know it well. Perhaps you read it or heard it preached in the Easter, just gone. I wonder, though, have you ever tried to put yourselves in the disciples' feet? Have you ever tried to imagine what it was like to be in that room that evening and feel what the disciples were feeling and experiencing? Well, that's what I want us to do tonight, though. Um, I'm not going to go too far, though, and imagine the smells and the sights and the sounds and things like that. I just want us to look at this passage and the parallel passages in Luke and establish all we can about what the disciples were going through. For then we can ex understand and experience what they were experiencing. We can see just what it meant to them when Jesus said, peace be with you. As we do this, I want to use um, the five WHs, when, who, what, where, why, and how. 
So the first thing we're going to consider is, when did this occur? Well, John makes it quite clear. He tells us in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, what we refer to as Easter Sunday. He makes it quite clear, even though at the start of the chapter, he's already told us it's the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, all the other gospel writers do the same. But John finds it necessary, he also needs to add in, again, it's the first day of the week. Even the flow of this chapter would make it clear that he's talking about the same day. John wants to reinforce, it is the same day, it's the first day of the week. So why does John do this? Well, it's a thing that John does. When he wants to drive home a point, he repeats himself. A bit like a mum and dad when they want to drive home a point to a child. They repeat it until they get it. So what does John want us to see? Well, he wants to see that it was quite an eventful day when this happened. Jesus had been crucified. He had risen from the dead. Mary, Madeline, and the other Mary went to the tomb to find Jesus' body had disappeared. The tomb was empty. Whilst they were weeping, Jesus appeared to them and told them, Go tell my disciples, I have risen from the dead. I am ascending to be with my Father. We are then told that Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved, who just so happens to be John, they went to the tomb themselves to see Jesus, to find he was not there. And then in addition, we are told that Jesus appeared to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And when he met them, he opened up the scriptures to them to show them how they all spoke about him. I just want to emphasize here, the two he met on the road to Emmaus were not what we would consider to be the 12 disciples. Yeah, it wasn't the main 12, but it was close followers of Jesus. So why do we need to know all this? Well, it helps us consider who was there. John tells us quite clearly it was the disciples. And from what he tells us in verse 24, we know that Thomas wasn't there. Obviously, Judas wasn't there because he had fallen away. He betrayed Jesus. Um, to the leaders, so it's 10 disciples. But yet, if we were to turn to Luke in chapter 24, we can see he tells us that it was also included these two followers on the road to Emmaus. Luke tells us in verse 33 of chapter 24, and they, being the two on the road to Emmaus, rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. So we can therefore conclude that as well as the disciples, there were other followers of Jesus, and possibly their family members. They were all together in this one room. So what were they doing? Well, as you would expect, they were talking about all that had happened. And we know this not only because it's logical to conclude that, but the Bible tells us. In Luke 24, verse 36, whilst John doesn't tell us what happens, um, Luke does. He tells us, and they were talking about these things. And the things he's referring to is everything that precedes this verse, the account of the two on the road to Emmaus. They were probably in that room or the building telling the people that were there all that Jesus had told them about the scriptures, telling them how Jesus had opened up the scriptures to show from Moses and the prophets they were all talking about Jesus. That's what they were discussing. I've no doubt they were trying to piece it all together, trying to understand and get their heads around all that had happened. They had been talking about Jesus' death, and all that occurred in the build-up to it. How did that fit in with the scriptures? How did that fit in with what Jesus had told them? They would have been talking about how the fact he was no longer in the tomb, the fact that he had risen. How did that fit in with the scriptures? How did that fit in with what Jesus had told them? But as they were discussing these things, they just didn't understand. They could not believe everything that was happening. 
because they did not get it. Even though Jesus had been telling and teaching them of what he would have to face, of what the prophecy spoke of, even though he showed them the prophecy spoke of him, they still did not fully understand it. And we can read in several places throughout this gospel exactly that. In this chapter, if we turn to verse 9 of chapter 20, we can see, yet did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And the Greek word used here for know is often translated to mean understand. I don't know about you, but I can just picture some of the confusion they were undoubtedly experiencing. If you consider, as they were talking amongst themselves, they were not only trying to get their heads around it all, but they were trying to remember all that Jesus had taught them. How easy is it to remember things you've been told, especially in circumstances as this? I'm sure we can all relate to how difficult it is to remember details of things we've been told when we're emotional, when we're upset. Sometimes even the simplest facts, like somebody's name, can escape our minds when we're under pressure or feeling upset. Well, here the disciples were, trying to understand all that Jesus had told them before he had been crucified. And they didn't understand it when he was alive. So how would they understand it now? So let's move on to see where were the disciples. Well, all John tells us is they were in a room together and the doors were locked. That's not much detail really to go on, is it, to establish where they were. So on first impressions, you may think it's not really that important. But as we'll come on to see, I believe it is important. So we have to use other parts of the Bible to help us understand where they were. The first place we can go to is Luke 24. And we are told that those two on the road to Emmaus returned to Jerusalem. So therefore we know they were gathered in a house in Jerusalem. And doesn't that fit with what you would expect? Even though we are told in Matthew's Gospel that the disciples left Jesus and fled, they didn't leave Jerusalem. The word fled describes the manner in which they left, in a hurried manner. Now some commentators would suggest the disciples were gathered together in that upper room where they had the Last Supper. And you can perhaps see the logical conclusion to that. However, remember the disciples are hiding for fear of the Jews. And this casts some doubt on the fact that they would be in that room. Why do I say that? Well, if you remember, that room belonged to a stranger. It wasn't one of their family members. It wasn't one of their houses. It was in a house they were directed to go to by Jesus. When Peter and John asked him why where do we prepare the meal, he gave them clear instructions as where to go. So if you think about it, these disciples were in fear. They were fearful of the Jews. Is it likely then that they would go to that house that didn't belong to them, that belonged to someone else they didn't really know, would they consider that to be a safe haven? What is more likely is they would gather in the house that belonged to one of their families or close friends. And I'm not just supposing here. We've got clear biblical data and evidence to support this. If we turn back to verse 10 of this chapter, John chapter 20, we can see John tells us the disciples went back to their homes. Therefore, some of them had homes in Jerusalem. And then in Acts 12, when we have uh, James being killed and Peter imprisoned, the disciples again were in fear. And Acts tells us quite clearly, the disciples and other close followers again gathered in a room. And we read in Acts 12, 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So here we have another occasion where the disciples were fearful. 
They were under threat, and they gathered together in one place where they felt safe, in that home. So it's likely that this place where they are in John 20 could be the same place as Acts chapter 12. The point I'm trying to make is they were in a place where they felt safe. It was a place known to them. They were looking for a safe haven, so much so that they shut the doors and they locked the doors. They were so scared, they wanted to make themselves safe. So what's our next point? Why did they not feel safe? Well, John quite clearly tells us they were afraid. They were for fear of the Jews. And this fear of the Jews is not something that's developed since the crucifixion of Jesus. In fact, it's quite noticeable throughout John's gospel. On several occasions throughout his gospel, John mentions that people were afraid to be associated with Jesus. They were afraid to declare him as the Messiah. Why? Well, because of what the Jews were going to do. We only need to turn to John 19, verse 38, and we can read this. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. The Jewish leaders had made a declaration that anyone who would acknowledge Jesus to be the Messiah should be unsynagogued. And the term we may know today is excommunicated. They would be kicked out of the synagogue. And that was a big thing in those days. The synagogue was a social, religious epicenter of life in Israel. To be cut of that was to be classed as an outcast. But not just you. Your whole family would be frowned upon. You'd bring shame and dishonor on your whole family. And so that was a fate that prevented many from declaring who Jesus was, let alone following him. But now Jesus had been crucified. That threat had been taken to a new level. Jesus' disciples feared, maybe, am I going to be killed too? They had seen how the Jewish leaders had schemed and plotted to kill Jesus, how they had corruptly and dishonestly brought false evidence against Jesus, how they had even used one of Jesus' own disciples to turn against him. So surely a thought going through their head would be, are we next? That's why they had locked themselves away in a place where they felt safe, because they were in fear. But I wonder, is that all that they were feeling? And so now we're going to look at how were they feeling. We've already seen that John clearly tells us they were fearful. But I don't think it's wrong to conclude there was mixed emotions. Some of their company had seen the risen Jesus. They had spoken to him. He had explained to them something of why he had to die, but also now why he had arisen. There was an element of excitement, an element of hope. I'm sure that those that had seen these things would have been trying to convince the others that he was alive. Having seen him so brutally killed, though, would they be so quick to believe them? Would there have been some unbelief in those other disciples? And we see in this passage that that did actually happen. For when Thomas, who was not with them, came back to the room and the disciples told him we've seen Jesus what did he say unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side I will never believe so clearly some of the disciples were not going to believe that Jesus had risen unless they saw for themselves and I would imagine they'd be trying to extract information from the others the ones that had seen Jesus so that they could believe how easy is it though to get information out to people who are excited. Yeah, you think of the kids. When they've got some exciting news to tell you, they rabble it off either really quickly or garbled. It's hard to get the information out because people are overcome with emotion. 
And so perhaps those that are trying to get the information are frustrated. Perhaps also there's a sense of jealousy amongst them. But don't forget there's been many occasions where the disciples fight amongst themselves. Yet even at the Last Supper they were saying to Jesus, who is going to be the greatest amongst us? Would they have been harboring the thought then maybe, why didn't Jesus appear to me? Why did he appear to them? Surely if he's alive he would have appeared to me or all of us. So would there have been elements of resentment and hostility between the disciples in that room? But don't forget, they are a group of sinful people gathered together at an incredibly difficult time. And isn't that what we observe with us, sinful people at difficult times? Isn't that how we react when emotions are high and things get difficult? We find ourselves being short with each other. We find ourselves being resentful towards each other. We find that we get offended easily. And so on top of all the confusion, all the lack of understanding, there was probably resentment, hostility, and frustration with each other. But we can't forget, they, may have been, or they would have been sad. They would have been hurt. Jesus, whom they'd been following for so long. Jesus, whom they'd give, given up everything for. Jesus, whom they loved, had been killed. And so whilst there was this thought in some of their minds, and some were saying he has risen, they were thinking, probably, what are we to do? Where are we going to go now? This man who we've been following, who said he was the son of God, has been killed. Obviously, the reports that he'd been risen from the dead had been told to them. Probably pushed the thoughts that he's dead back to the back of the minds. But we must not forget they were dealing with grief and loss. And the emotions that come with grief and loss don't get switched off straight away. The underlying emotion, though, that governed what they were doing was fear. And that's what Luke and John make clear. Those disciples that were gathered in the room were looking to make themselves safe. So I hope I've made it quite clear in the way we examine this passage. The disciples were locked away because they didn't feel safe. But they wanted to make themselves safe. So how would you feel in that situation? Obviously, we may not fully understand the level of fear they had because we're not under the same sort of threat in this country. But perhaps we can imagine to a degree what they were feeling. I know I said at the start, I want us to put ourselves in their shoes. But as we spent some time looking at this passage, looking at their circumstances, would you agree we don't need to put ourselves in their shoes? We don't need to imagine what it was like for them in that moment. For aren't there moments in our own lives where we have experienced the exact same feelings and emotions the disciples experienced in this moment? There have been moments maybe where each one of us have been scared and fearful. What will people say because I'm a Christian? There have been moments where we've maybe felt sad and alone and possibly even felt that God has abandoned us and left us on our own to cope. There have been moments where we've fallen out with those around us, those that we thought would understand and we just feel resentment and hostility. So the first thing I want to emphasize really in this moment when Jesus appeared to the disciples, when in the midst of all they were feeling, that's when he appeared. So just as he met them exactly where they were in their hour of need, when they were feeling scared, nervous and anxious, when they were feeling lost, saddened and possibly abandoned, when they were harboring frustration and resentment, Jesus meets them. Or rather, he comes to them. And in the same manner, when we are feeling all those things, Jesus comes to us. We don't have to go to him, but he comes to us. 
he meets us in the midst of our problems. Let's look at verse 19. It makes it quite clear. Jesus came and stood in the midst. Jesus didn't come in or come to the door, knock on the door, asking to be let in. Jesus didn't come into the room and stand on the edge and wait for the disciples to notice that he's there. Jesus comes into the midst of the room, into the midst of the disciples, so they can be left in no doubt whatsoever that he is there. And it's the same with us. When we truly need him, when all our fears and our troubles seem too much, when we're overcome with emotions and don't know what to do or what to think, he comes and stands with us. And I'm sure we can all relate to how the disciples try to make themselves safe. They locked themselves in a room, what they considered to be a safe haven, with people they trusted. And don't we do the same when we're feeling scared and anxious and fearful? Don't we try and make ourselves safe? Maybe we retreat into ourselves. We may shut ourselves off from others. Maybe only allow in an odd few people that we really trust in to come close. The barriers go up. The guards go up. But Christ is not prevented from coming to us through any barriers we can put up. Just as the locked door didn't stop him coming to the disciples, nothing can prevent him coming to us in all his glory. And what does he do when he comes? The first thing he does, he reminds us that in him and him alone, we find true peace. That's the first thing he said to the disciples, wasn't it? Peace be with you. Now I have to emphasize that when Jesus said, peace be with you, he was not just greeting them in the way that was customary for the Jewish people to do. He was not just saying shalom as a means of saying hello. It's so, so much more, and we'll come on to see. But first I want to reinforce why it's not just a greeting. If it was just a greeting, surely he would only say it once. But yet we are told in verse 19, he says, when he first appeared, peace be with you. And then in verse 21, he says again, peace be with you. So if it was a, a hello, why does he say it twice? What Jesus is doing, he's telling them and showing the disciples he's fulfilled the promise he made to them before he was crucified. That's the promise we looked at at the start of this message. As I said earlier, Jesus promised the disciples that he would give them peace. He knew in the very near future he would be crucified. He knew the disciples' faith would take a blow. Even then, as he was beginning to explain to them what would happen, their faith began to waver. And so when he had been arrested and crucified, he knows their faith will be shaken. Their hearts will be troubled. That's why at the start of that conversation, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. The cure for a troubled heart is the assurance that Jesus is and always will be the Savior, even though he died, or rather, even because he died. The peace that Jesus says is with the disciples is the peace that he promised to give them. It's a peace that is not of this world, and it's not given in the way the world gives peace. The peace that Jesus brings and gives the disciples is the peace that can only be obtained because of what he accomplished on the cross. That's why we read in verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. Now many people often just think he's doing this to show that it's really him, that it's really Jesus before them. But it's so much, much more. He's shown the disciples he's done all that was needed. He's done all that he promised he would do, all that was prophesied that would happen and needed to happen. He was showing them that he had been pierced for their transgressions and because his blood 
had covered all their sins, he's now able to give them that promised peace, his peace that passes all understanding. Even in the face of suffering, in the face of, of, face of adversity, we can experience that same peace in our hearts. Why? Because if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are at peace with God. Now, I'll say this quite carefully because it's important. It's only because we have peace with God that we can know the peace of God. I'll say it again. It's only because we have peace with God that we can know the peace of God. Peace with God and the peace of God are two different things. Having peace with God is only the start of knowing what God's peace is. Let me explain it this way. God is described as being a God of peace. And so to know God is to know peace. We can only know God when we enter into a relationship with him. But to enter into a relationship with him, we first need to be made right with him. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he paid the price for our sins. He reconciled us to God, and now we are at peace with God. This is only the beginning. We can now know the peace of God. And the more we get to know God, the more of his peace we experience. Actually, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John 14. And we're going to look at uh, verse 27. John 14, verse 27. Um, it's just the first bit I want to emphasize. When Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Have you noticed? My peace. It's his peace that he gives us. And this really struck me as I was preparing this message. The sense of closeness that Jesus experiences with God the Father. The sense of harmony they share as father and son. That's the peace he gives to us. It's that sense of harmony that we can have with God is the one that Jesus has with God. And that's what is meant by peace in this context. We can know God as sons and daughters of God in the same way that Jesus knows God as his son. But it does not end there. There's an abundance of peace that we can experience the closer we draw to God. But as we grow in our relationship with him, we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who he is. We see the depths of his love. We begin to rest in his power and his wisdom. We begin to understand that he will make all things work together for our good. We learn that his purposes will be accomplished. Allow me to use an illustration. Imagine, if you like, that God's peace is like a flower's beauty. When the flower begins to bloom, is like the moment that our relationship with God starts. This is when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are made right with him, and we have peace with God. We can see that when a flower blooms, it's a beautiful thing. As the bud opens, the petals begin to appear, you notice something of what the flower actually is. It's the same when we start a relationship with God. We experience something of his peace as we see something of his character, something of his goodness, his love, his holiness. As the flower then continues to grow, the petals unfold, it continues to bloom, and you see more of its beauty. You see how the petals are interwoven. You see the different colors coming through, the smell you experience. It all fits together. As we grow in our relationship with God, so does the peace that we experience. The more of his character we discover, the different aspects of who he is we see, we discover more of his peace. Maybe we discover more of his promises, or we experience more of his love and continual goodness. We see that by relying on him and trusting on him, we can know and experience that real peace in our hearts. 
That's why Jesus said to the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And that is when he tells them in this moment now in this locked room, they have peace. Because he has done all that was needed so that they and us can receive that peace. So what was the result of the disciples seeing Jesus and seeing that they had that peace? I haven't been reminded of his promise, having seen the holes in his hands and his feet, and as Luke records, having seen he had a physical body, that he truly has risen from the dead, they rejoiced for they saw their Lord. Are you able to rejoice tonight in the same way the disciples did? If you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour, if he is your Lord, you can have that same peace in your heart. No matter what troubles may come before you, you can know true peace, because through Christ you have peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first part of why Jesus says, peace be with you. It's only right then we look at the second occasion when he says, peace be with you. Why does Jesus repeat himself? Why does he again tell the disciples, peace be with you? Is he driving home the point that John does by repeating himself? No. He's reminding the disciples He's reminding us that the peace that we have been given by him, we are now to offer to others. Just as we now have peace with Jesus and share in that peace that Jesus has with God the Father, Jesus is sending us to give others the opportunity to share in that peace. Verse 21 reads, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus is commissioning those that believe and trust in him to go and spread this message of peace, this message of hope. This is John's equivalent to the Great Commission. Jesus, throughout his teaching, made it perfectly clear that he had been sent by the Father. John alone records the phrase, him who sent me, 38 times. The message that Jesus has brought is not his own message, but it comes from the Father. And that's the message that we now need to take forward. We are being sent by Jesus to deliver in the same way this same message. And it's important that we recognise and remember we are charged to do it in the same way that Jesus did. Paul reminds us in Galatians 1, 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's the gospel that we proclaim. That's the message that we are to deliver accurately and clearly. It's all we must do. Before I move on, though, I just want to provide some clarification to ensure that we don't misunderstand verse 23. It reads, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And it's similar to what we saw this morning in Matthew 16. This does not mean the disciples were given power and authority to forgive a person's sin. It does not mean we have that authority. Quite simply, it means if we preach the gospel and declare to a person that by believing and responding to it, they will have their sins forgiven. If they respond, their sins will be forgiven. In the same way, by preaching and declaring the gospel, and we tell a person, if you reject this gospel, you will not have their sins forgiven. If they do just that and reject the gospel, they will not be forgiven. But it's still a big task before us. We haven't got that authority to forgive sins. But we are still to share the gospel in the same way Jesus did. It's quite a daunting task, isn't it? 
even for the disciples back then and for us today. But we are not left on our own to share the gospel. Neither were the disciples. Jesus provided the power for them to do their mission. He gave them the Holy Spirit. And he gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that Jesus gives is what enables us to do what we're not able to do on our own. He gives us the power, but also he reminds us that we have peace in our hearts. Because in those moments when we are fearful, in those moments when we have doubts, when we do not believe we are capable of doing God's work, when we believe we will fail, we are to remember that Jesus gave the disciples that peace to drive them forward, to enable them to move out from behind that locked door to do, it work, do his work. That peace overcame their fear, enabled them to accomplish the task set before them. Likewise for us today, the peace that Jesus gives us is not designed to make us comfortable and at rest. The peace that he gives us is to remove our unrest, to remove our fears and our doubts. It's to give us the confidence to go forward to do his will for his glory. Because we can know with certainty that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So as we live our lives, as we face the challenges before us, as we run the race set before us, we are able to do his work for his glory when we focus on the peace which only Christ can bring.